Morning, everybody. It has been a great week here at Old North. This past week, we had the opportunity to host 40 pastors and church leaders from throughout our region uh, to come here to Old North for a workshop Wednesday, Thursday, and half of Friday on biblical exposition. And so we have pastors uh, coming, actually one came all the way from Miami, Florida, that came up, and we spent two and a half days, morning till evening, in the book of 2 Timothy, just saturating ourselves in it and, uh, and refining some of the tools and principles that we engage in of how we handle the word. Uh, so I thought it was important for you to know that for a couple of reasons. Number one, to know that uh, we as a church are... Uh, encouraged by other churches and are encouraging other churches. And number two, um, the topic of the sermon today is one that comes out of this last week's workshop. I'm going to take a little break from our series in Genesis and preach a sermon this morning that I was able to preach to these pastors uh, on Wednesday afternoon from the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1. And so I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me. Turn to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, and uh, as you turn, I will pray. Let's pray together. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be part of a local church uh, because you, God, are a great and mighty God who calls a unique people together to love you, to follow you, to receive your many good gifts, and to know you. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that in your majesty, in your dominion, that you still make yourself known to us, and that we find our ultimate fulfillment in knowing and in loving you. Help us to know you more and to love you more today. God, help us as we look at your word to know you more and to know what you desire of us. Uh, give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. Lift the veil of perception that is so often over our lives so that we may see you clearly and respond faithfully. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in case you haven't heard, this past week, our nation elected a new president of the United States. Did you, have you guys heard that? Yeah? We all know that one of the important issues of this election cycle is the issue of religious liberty and how you can read writings in the Wall Street Journal or Christianity Today or any number of online publications about the importance of religious liberty and how one candidate would promote religious liberty more and one might contract the liberties of religious organizations more and how this idea or this issue of religious liberty was important, particularly at this time in history. In fact, just a month or so ago, I was in a meeting with a number of different pastors and scholars and leaders, and one well-known evangelical leader boldly proclaimed that the issue of religious liberty was the most important issue of this particular election. Christianity was under threat, he proclaimed, and therefore we should 
vote as Christians in a certain way to mitigate this threat. Christianity under threat. I've been a pastor uh, long enough to know, not, not many, many years, but certainly long enough to know that some of the greatest threats to the church come from outside, <laughs> but that many of the greatest threats to the church and even to the ministry of the gospel don't come from outside the church. They actually rise up from within the church. I had to learn on this in the school of hard knocks. I became a senior pastor uh, when I was 30 years old, and it took a whopping eight weeks before the threat internally rose up within the church. And it came in the form of one of the leaders. He was a large, imposing figure. He was passionate, articulate, emotional, very emotional, and um, compelling in the way that he talked. And yet, at the very same time, he was leading the people of this church down a very dangerous path. He was a threat, not, not particularly a threat to me personally. It was a much greater threat. He was a threat to the ministry of the church and to the message of the gospel itself. The gospel under threat, Christians under threat. This is a topic that has been in the news for the last number of months leading up to the election, but it's not a topic that's new, something that we are newly concerned with. Every generation over the past 2,000 years has needed to reckon with the specific threats to the gospel of God's people. And when these threats come, it would be easy for us to put our hope in a political candidate and say he will mitigate the threat. It would be easy for us as some have done, to adopt a different philosophy of ministry, different programs, to try to bring in more people and to try to mitigate the threat. It would be easy for us to change tact altogether, to redefine ourselves in certain ways to mitigate the threat. I mean, and some of these desires come from really healthy places. I mean, we want to reach as many people as we can. I think we'd all agree with that. We want to grow and we want to have a vibrant congregation for ourselves and for all of our brother and sister churches throughout this nation. We want the work of God to be on display so the whole world can see it. We want Christians who are passionate and deep in their knowledge and commitment to God and have the courage to live that out in their daily lives. These are healthy, healthy desires. I mean, surely all pastors want those things, all elders want those things, but I would say probably all Christians really want those things. Surely a young pastor named Timothy wanted those things for his church family as well. Timothy was the pastor of a church in a town called Ephesus, but the ministry there was under threat. They had outside ideas and influences on the church, and they were rising up within the congregation itself, a variety of teachers that constituted a threat, not only to the ministry, but to the gospel itself. Surely he had pressures 
to adopt a number of different strategies. Surely there must have been a pressure to maybe even look toward a specific person or political candidate to mitigate this threat. But in the midst of threat, where should he place his confidence? The Apostle Paul writes to this pastor, Timothy. And that's where we pick up the story today in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Apostle to pastor and by extension to church. Hear the words, 2 Timothy chapter 1 starting at verse 13. This is what it says. Paul writes to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Paul says to Timothy, in the midst of threat, have confidence in the gospel word. But why? Why should we have confidence in the gospel word? Well, verse 13, he begins this section anyway by this specific phrase, follow the pattern of the sound words. And by these words, these sound words, he's referring to the scripture themselves, which make clear the nature of the gospel. But it's interesting to me that he focuses Timothy's attention to the idea of words, sound words. I mean, the gospel is about a person. The gospel is about a cross. The gospel is about sin and repentance from that sin. The gospel is about forgiveness. The gospel is about resurrection of Jesus and resurrection of all his people on the last day. But he focuses on words. In fact, this emphasis on words is actually a thread that he weaves throughout this whole book of 2 Timothy. Listen to just some of the examples, both positive words in their effect and negative words. Here in chapter 1, 13, follow the pattern of the sound words. Chapter 2, 14, he says, don't quarrel about words. And in verse 15, then he says, but rightly handle the word of truth. Moving on in chapter 2, verse 16, he tells Timothy to avoid irreverent babble. Well, certainly babble is words. Moving to chapter 3, verse 10, he says, You have followed my teaching. That comes in the form of words. Verse 14, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. This comes in the form of words. He talks about sacred writings, words which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ. And that scripture, specific words, are God-breathed. Chapter 4 he comes to this wonderful crescendo where he says, preach the word because there are some men who will not endure sound teaching or not endure sound words. They will wander away into myths. Myths are <laughs> coming to them in the form of words. Words, 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 words. You get the point. Not only do words have meaning, meaning, 
But words constitute the very pathway to life or the very pathway to death. Secondly, we see that this word is described, look at verse 14 with me, as the good deposit that is entrusted to you. The good deposit, this is an image of a person holding something of great value and he gives it to another person or puts it in a certain place for its safekeeping, for its protection, so the value is maintained over time. Paul tells Timothy, he tells the pastor that the one He is the one who is entrusted with this great task of keeping safe the most prized possession. It's a good deposit. I wonder if you've ever experienced or seen a bad deposit and what that looks like. A bad deposit is something that you thought was of value, but in the end, it turns out to be nothing but a fake. A bad deposit is something that has great promise attached to it. But when you're looking for a return on that investment, it yields nothing. You're disappointed. I think of maybe the one, one of the most cruel bad deposits that we see people make from time to time is when a young man saves up all of his money to express his love and commitment to this girl that he loves and he goes to propose marriage to her and he thinks that he's buying a diamond. But he's buying cubic zirconia. That's a bad day. <laughs> because of a bad deposit especially when she finds out. (laughs) But a good deposit, a good deposit, if kept safe, not, not private, but if kept safe, if it's kept pure in its expression, this deposit yields tremendous returns in its right time. Guys, it sounds almost too simple, doesn't it? When there's threat at hand, trust in these sound words, the gospel word. But we know the temptation. The temptation comes from inside the church and it comes from outside the church as well. That if we make these words more palatable, more people will accept it. If we dull the sharp edges of this word, we won't offend our friends and neighbors. If we actively question the clarity of this word, if we say, oh, that just must be an interpretation issue, we can't really know what God is trying to say, well, then we can more easily roll into the culture around us, and the church becomes more acceptable for everybody. If we add on to the promise of this word, a promise of prosperity, then the masses will come. And if we make sure that the good word is packaged in such a way that it appears to be on the leading edge of the trend, or the ones who are delivering this word, whether that's from the pulpit on Sunday or in the classroom on Wednesday, if they look the part of a reality TV culture, then surely success must be at hand. On the one side, there's a threat. And on the other side, there's just the very simple desire to be loved. 
And it's hard. Who doesn't want to be loved? It's hard when we know that the gospel word sometimes puts us in a position to receive incredible things of God and at the very same time puts us in relational difficulty with the people around us. But we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, after all, we're told right here in this book of 2 Timothy in chapter 4, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Is that what you signed up for when you became a Christian? And yet, it's right here as plain as day. We know this is the reality because as 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 tells us that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense. It's sounds ignorant or stupid or intolerant or foolish. But we have hope in the second half of that verse that to those who are being saved, this word is the power of God. That's why it's so important that we're clear about what this gospel word actually is, what these sound words, what this good deposit that he's talking about is, that we don't water it down, that we don't avoid the hard stuff, that we don't mix in our own ideas. Broadly speaking, these sound words, this good deposit is talking about the scripture as a whole and more specifically talking about the fact that in the scriptures, the ultimate point is the message of the gospel itself, that all of the law and the prophets in their writings and the revelation of who God is and how God works were pointing ahead to the person and work of Jesus who saves us from our sins and how all of the New Testament writers and all of their instruction and advice and revelation about who God is and how God works all flow out of this ultimate point in human history of the cross and the resurrection. And we have access to that in words. Paul describes these gospel words in a variety of ways just in these first books of 1 and 2 Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy 1.15, that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It's a gospel word. Here in 2 Timothy, he describes this gospel as the promise of the life, chapter 1, verse 1. The purposes of his grace, chapter 1, verse 9. The appearance of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Chapter 1, verse 10. He says that the word of the scripture is able to make one wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Chapter 3, 15. We have confidence in the word. And that can be hard. Just a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to meet a gentleman named Dan Mead. Dan is the recently retired CEO of Verizon Wireless. He was in the mobile phone industry since before uh, mobile phones. He was on the leading edge in a lot of ways. And in our short conversation, he gave a very interesting statistic. 
He said that the average smartphone user looks at their phone approximately 200 times a day. I wonder where you fall in the spectrum. As I was thinking about my own addiction, I think I'm probably, probably close to there. My wife would agree. She might say even more. And that doesn't even count the amount of time in front of a laptop screen or a TV that we have on or the number of different audio stimuli that we have. And when you engage in that much instant stimulation, this actually changes your brain chemistry. Scientists are doing all kinds of work right now to figure out how it changes your brain chemistry and then what that means for our culture going forward is only something that we can speculate. But my point in, 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 that, in saying that is very simply to illustrate the reality that right now in our time, we live in an I want it now, instant gratification culture, and it's a hard concept for people to to grasp or to trust or to have confidence in a word that sometimes has instant results and very often has results that are built up over time as God uses it to change us. It's hard because the dopamine levels in my brain are pumping at a million miles an hour when I'm looking at my smartphone for the 198th time today and I want everything right now. But a good deposit, a good deposit yields in its right time. Friends, we can have confidence in this word. When we preach it on Sundays, when we teach it in the classroom or in small groups, when we live it throughout the week, have confidence in God's appointed means that the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ will be accessed in your life through the word of Jesus Christ. Confidence in the gospel word. And that confidence in the gospel word leads us to competence in the gospel work. And we see that in a couple different threads here in 2 Timothy. Confidence in the gospel word leads to competence in gospel work. The first is found in the nature of suffering that this gospel word leads to those who follow it. Now many in our time would say that Christian ministry is successful or a church is particularly anointed or even for you in your Christian life that your Christian life is considered successful when God meets you in a place of relative ease and therefore you can prosper in all sorts of ways externally speaking. You have rapid growth in your life or in your church. You have limited conflict around you. And from a variety of external measures, we can measure or look at who is successful in this life and who is not, and which churches are successful in this life and which churches are not. And if there's heavy sledding along the way, then clearly, either the pastor in your church lacks competence, or you yourself, as you go through life, must not be one of the anointed ones of God. But Paul seems to indicate the exact opposite reality to be true. 
He says, yes, the word produces conversions. Yes, the word produces growth. It brings to light immortality and life. But the ones who minister that word, and by extension, the ones who follow that word, will undergo regular threat along the way. And we see this in a couple of different ways. Look with me at your passage of scripture. In chapter one, verse eight, he tells Timothy to share in suffering with him for the gospel. And then in verse 12, he says, just as I suffer. In verse 12, again, he says, this was entrusted to me. This good deposit was entrusted to me. And now in verse 14, I'm entrusting it to you. And in chapter two, verse two, you go on and entrust it to others, to faithful men who will handle it likewise. In verse eight, he says, do not be ashamed of me or the testimony of our Lord. And in verse 12, he says, for I'm not ashamed. There's this thread, there's this, I'm doing this and so you do this. Follow me in my example. And all the examples that you're giving are shame and suffering (laughs) and entrusting. Paul is saying, You can suffer in this life and not be ashamed of it because confidence in the gospel word leads to competence in the gospel work. And to illustrate his point, he gives a couple of examples, a positive example and a negative example. Look with me at verse 15. The negative example comes first. He says that Phagellus and Hermogenes were the ones among the people of Asia, all of them who left him. They were faced with mounting pressure. The threat was real. He didn't want to be associated necessarily with Paul. I mean, Paul is writing this very letter about confidence while he's in prison on death row near the end of his life. From all external measures, putting confidence in this was not a success. And so... Phagellus and Hermogenes bailed, along with others in Asia. I don't know about you, but every time I read Paul's specific examples of people in a negative light in the New Testament, I both feel tremendously sorry for them and scared for myself at the very same time. I mean, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be Phagellus or Hermogenes that... Paul, when he writes his letters, say, hey, when everything was good, they were standing right there with me. But the second things got hard, man, those guys were out. And now I'm going to write this letter to Timothy that goes to the church at Ephesus and is circulated throughout all the churches. Don't be like those guys. Oh, and guess what? It goes on down through generation after generation after generation. Friends, may it never be said of us that when things got hard, we lost our confidence in God's means for his work. They didn't have confidence in the gospel word. And so when things got hard, they left. But conversely, look at the positive example. The positive example found in verses 16 through 18 is in a man named Anesiphorus. If you say it wrongly, you'll sound like you're talking about a dinosaur. But he was a real person. Paul says, he refreshed me. 
He wasn't ashamed of my chains. He wasn't ashamed that I was in jail. He searched for me earnestly. He served the church in Ephesus well. Why did he do all those things? Well, because he had confidence. Confidence in the gospel word led to competence in his gospel work. I wonder how that applies to the church today. What does confidence in God's word lead us to? We could list a hundred things probably, but I'll just list three. Confidence in God's word leads us to a ministry in which we highly elevate biblical preaching and teaching. It's one of our core values at Old North. It means that on Sundays we could stand up here and, and, and give sermons that are very life situational in nature. We could do a lot of research and, and, and do a lot of um, instruction on how to be a better husband or how to be a better parent or how to not worry about stress or, or do a variety of things. And those things are helpful in their due place, but we're happy to be a church where biblical preaching and teaching is put forward because we have confidence in the word and because the word actually does intersect our lives where we are right now does so on God's terms and his agenda and schedule, not necessarily on ours. Secondly, this means that when we have confidence in the word, that we begin to understand more clearly how we grow in the Christian life. That when we, whether we attend a small group here at church or in any of the programs here, that again, the Bible is the thing that drives the agenda that we focus on that as the words for not only our life, but also for our growth. But it also means all kinds of things for you and your daily life as a Christian outside of programs. It means when you roll out of the bed in the morning, you could choose to pick up a devotional from the famous pastor or the famous author or the really pithy writer that's funny and say, I'm going to get inspired today. And some of those things are helpful and good but you have access to the very word of God, the sound words, the good deposit. And you can have confidence that he is gonna grow you and change you through those means. How we grow is defined by this word. Thirdly, this means that we have a framework for success in ministry as a church, as Old North, but also for success in your life. That external factors or measures are not the primary ways in which we evaluate success. And what do I mean by that? In the church, the primary way that we evaluate success is not how many people come on Sundays. It's not whether or not the message was funny or whether it was emotional or whether I was particularly transparent or on my game on that day or whether Chris and Lori brought us to tears with the music. A lot of people think that is what success is in ministry. I mean, I've had people say to me very directly, hey, pastor, as long as you make them laugh or make them cry, you're gonna be just fine. But if we have confidence in the word, then success for our church, but also success for your life is defined by faithfulness to God as he outlines it in this word. And so as you go through the ups and downs of job changes and difficulties in your marriage and raising children or, or living a life in singleness and health issues and parent problems and all kinds of things, 
that God accomplishes his growth in your life and you can be successful as you are faithful to him regardless of the external measures. Confidence in the gospel word leads to competence in the gospel work. I can't imagine being Moses standing before Pharaoh and saying, let my people go if I didn't have confidence in the word of God during that season. I can't imagine being the prophet Jeremiah who is given a commissioning that nobody on earth would ever choose. Go to a bunch of people that don't like you and don't want to hear what you have to say and tell them anyway. And guess what? They're not going to listen. Can you imagine doing that if you didn't have confidence in the word of God? I can't imagine being Jesus, going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, scholars of the law, if I didn't have complete confidence in God's word. I can't imagine being Peter and John, speaking to the priests and to the Sanhedrin under constant threat of persecution and even imprisonment, if I didn't have confidence in the word of God. And I certainly can't imagine being a pastor of a local church who stands up and preaches Sunday after Sunday and meets with people in the middle of the week if I didn't have confidence, complete and utter confidence in the word of God. I would rather do almost anything else. It'd be a fool's errand. But we can have confidence. Confidence in the gospel word leads to competence in the gospel work. I close this morning with a story of another election. And it points, this story points and contrasts the big messages of our culture with the more humble messages of God's word. In 2004, Viktor Yushchenko stood for the presidency of the Ukraine. He was vehemently opposed by the ruling party, and so much so that Yushchenko's face was disfigured from a mysterious poisoning that happened in the lead-up to the election. This was not enough to deter him from standing for office. And on the day of the election, Yushchenko was comfortably in the lead. The ruling party, however, would not be denied, and they tampered with the results. The state-run television programs and news anchors began to report with some consistency, our dear citizens, we announced that the challenger, Viktor Yushchenko, has been decisively defeated. In the lower right-hand corner of the screen, a woman by the name of Natalia Dimitruk was providing a translation service for the deaf community. And Natalia, seeing what was happening and hearing what was going on, refused to translate what the state-sponsored news anchors were saying. And this is what she signed in the bottom of the screen instead. She said, I am addressing all the deaf citizens of the Ukraine. They're lying. And I'm ashamed to translate this. Yushchenko is our president. 
And the deaf community sprang into action. They text messaged their friends the fraudulent results of the election. News spread to a number of other local news sources that saw Natalia's courage in reporting this falsehood. And they began to tell the story likewise. And over the coming weeks, what took place was what was known as the Orange Revolution. A million people dressed in orange descended upon the capital in Kiev, demanding a new election. And a new election was indeed held. And Viktor Yushchenko became the president. Philip Yancey, in thinking about these events in history, writes this. He says, when I heard the story behind the Orange Revolution, the image of the small screen of truth in the corner of the large screen became the ideal picture of the church. You see, the church doesn't control the large screen very often. And the large screen promotes a completely different agenda and message. Go to any magazine rack or turn on any TV station, and what matters is how beautiful you are, how much money you have, how successful or how much power you have. Similarly, the world includes those people, discluding the poor. You don't see magazine covers about poor people. You see magazine covers about Oprah Winfrey and even Donald Trump. Our society is hardly unique. Throughout history, nations have always glorified the winners and never the losers. And then along came a person named Jesus who says, in effect, don't believe the big screen. They're lying. Suffering leads to glory. The simple work of the word leads to success. And Paul says to Timothy, no matter what the external circumstances look like, you have confidence. Have confidence that The gospel word leads to competence in gospel work. May it be said of you, may it be said of me that at the end of our days, regardless of the external pressures or messages, that our confidence is found in God's appointed means, that our lives reflect the growth that happens not based on culture or society, but our lives reflect a dynamic in which we understand confidence in God's means, confidence in the gospel word. That's what leads to competency in gospel growth. But friends, this is hard. This vision for life is hard. And so let's pray together and just ask God to help us in this, shall we? Please pray with me. Father, it is hard. It is hard in a time and a society in which we have instant results. It's hard to know uh, under certain pressures and threats that you are ever present and ever present and faithful to your appointed means. And so God, we ask, seeing you and knowing you and growing deeper in our affections for you, that you would undergird us with confidence, confidence in your word that the result of that confidence would be transformed lives for us and for those around us. That the result of this type of confidence would be a church that's ultimately successful, 
not by external standards, but by standards of faithfulness to you. And we know that leads to all kinds of other benefits. We ask, God, that you would make us these people individually and that you would form us into these people as a community. We pray these things for the sake of your glory. Amen.